Welcome to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast, where we discuss OSHA, EPA, safety policy, safety training, employee engagement, and everything in between. Safety is so much more than a technical skill. It's a motivational need. It's a means of engaging your team. Safety is a meaningful business practice that makes a direct impact on everyone in the organization. Hi, I'm your host for the podcast, Dr. Mark French, also known as The Safety Dude. As a certified safety professional and nationally registered EMT, I am excited to share my knowledge and passion from experience in environmental health, safety, security, and human resources. I've worked in the automotive, foods, chemical, nuclear, and e-commerce fields. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode as we talk through the current issues in environmental health and safety and how they can affect the culture of your organization. Welcome to this uh, episode of the podcast. Glad you could join me. Uh, Jumping right in here, the first uh, interesting piece of news that really came out is some out of Washington, D.C., and it seems that under the radar here, they're starting to push a little bit more for looking for an OSHA standard to cover for COVID-19. And they're calling for emergency legislation to go into effect to cover for employers to have safety features for COVID-19. And of course, there's pushback on both sides. There's a little bit of back and forth because, of course, it's already somewhat covered under the bloodborne pathogen standard, in a way, uh, a little bit under personal protective equipment, of course, got to provide that based on guidance that's available. And there is an, an FAQ out there on the OSHA webpage about COVID-19 already. So they've already kind of started covering like some ideas and some policy based on what we know about COVID-19 and how to prevent it spread in the workplace. Of course, there's the general duty clause saying that you have to provide that safe place for people to work. Now, what's interesting here is what I really have found the most interesting is this yelling and calling for these emergency measures, knowing good and well that we have underfunded OSHA at the state level and federal level, that we can't enforce it. And I think that's what's disturbing to me the most is that this is truly, and this is my opinion, completely my opinion, a placebo effect that we we want to do something. We want to show that we are being proactive. And so we're calling on OSHA to make some quick legislational changes. And then we have no way of enforcing it. So even if these were passed, there would be some companies out there that would do their best to follow it. There's always those good companies, and I think there's quite a few out there. There's there's a lot of people, a lot of good safety professionals, a lot of good companies that watch these regulations, and they truly have a great desire to follow it. And then there's those that, just like anything else in the world, they're, they don't care. Not going to care, not going to follow it, not even aware of it. Probably couldn't spell OSHA if you uh, asked them to. (laughs) And they're not going to follow it, nor can it be enforced. I mean, we last week really hit on the idea that there's so many open claims, both from workers' compensation side of it and even the OSHA side of it, that we can't even keep up. And over the years, we've seen money kind of flow in and out of OSHA, but really not any major hiring to 
really crank up education or enforcement. And that's really the two sides of what OSHA should be doing for us is they should be helping with education on top of going out there and doing their compliance audits. And so here we see that even if we put into place and do we need Maybe we do, maybe we don't. I think there's a lot of politics involved in this. My opinion is we don't want to rush this. This is too important for us to jump in with what we don't have enough science yet. There's a lot of medical opinion that a medical opinion has evolved because we've continued to learn. Um, I read an article yesterday, and I cannot remember where it's from, but they talked about that there's the potential for the vaccine maybe by the fall, maybe even as early as September to be developed, maybe longer. But anyway, that was an optimistic view of what's going on in that COVID world. But to look at that and to think that, okay, we don't have all the science yet. We don't have a lot of, of data that tells us about the virus. We're still learning. We're still, the cases are up and down. Deaths are up and down. Too much information that we don't know about. And for us to rush a legislative process, to rush a law into place that we can't enforce, I think is the part that really is interesting. We can't educate on it. We don't have the resources. We don't have the resources out there to enforce it for sure. I mean, when you're talking 4,000 plus cases in some states that are going unanswered of complaints, there's not much you can do. And so this is really that placebo that they're setting up in D.C. and they're throwing anything they can at it to try to make it look as if something is happening. And so you, you of course, have this pushback back and forth. Do we eventually probably need some better guidance on this? Yeah, of course. We need to use good science and we need to figure out the best way to protect our team. An emergency measure, maybe not so much because I think that would limit us from that standpoint. We should be focused on performance-based at this point. Are we cleaning? Are we providing PPE? Are we providing education? Are we helping with social distancing? All these things that we know work can be followed under the PPE guidance, can be followed under bloodborne pathogen guidance, can be followed under general duty clause. But again, it's really hard to enforce when it's just overwhelming at this point. The numbers of complaints, the numbers of cases are on a scale that we weren't prepared for and on a scale that OSHA cannot physically go and get involved in because it is just too much. And so you see this kind of back and forth of this idea of do we need it or do we not need it? I think it's too fast. And that's my personal opinion, of course, that it's just too fast. We just don't have what we need to know to fully understand how we can enforce it for one. If we don't plan to put into place, if there's not an emergency measure to back up this emergency legislation. So if we pass a law, and then we don't increase funding for OSHA to hire a bunch of people to go out and start doing these audits, to start looking for compliance. We're not doing anything. This is not going to fix anything, especially since as the science evolves, that we want to be able to keep up with that. And that law or that emergency legislation or that temporary standard may very well hold our hand and not let us do that. And then we've got to reverse it and change it. I think for now, giving us the the ability to adapt, 
giving good OSHA people, the ones who understand what they're doing, the ones that are coming in and they're looking for those systemic issues, give them the ability to cite under PPE, give them the ability to cite under Bloodborne, give them the ability to look at the general duty clause and see, is this company putting forth the effort that we would expect a company to put forth to protect their team? And that's really what these standards should be about, is that we know there's good science out there for things like machine guarding. We know that there's protections that should be into place. When we look at COVID-19, it's still very much evolving. The science is not fully clear. I think we're still going to learn some more about it. Because remember, early on, they thought maybe the heat, as we get into the warmer months, would help prevent cases. Mm, Maybe so, maybe not. But we've, we've had a lot of variability there that really has not helped. But then face masks in the beginning were if you're only sick. Now it's everybody wear them because you can be asymptomatic for so long. We didn't think about that. Didn't know the history that it could be that severe. Of course, social distancing, hand washing. Don't go and do things if you really shouldn't be out going and doing things in big crowds. That way that you are preventing that from being happening. But we certainly... You saw a big push that people wanted to get back to work. Um, the unemployment claims, especially in some states, got so severe that they couldn't keep up with them. And so people are still waiting for their unemployment. So you can see how that pushes people to want to get back to work, even if it's not fully prepared yet. I mean, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first need is food, water, and shelter. The second need is safety. So people will want or have to, in that fundamental need, put their safety at risk to provide food, shelter, water, which in this day and age is not just hunting, foraging, gathering. It's, it's about going to work, earning money so that you can go and feed a family. And so they will put that aside. They will go to somewhere that could potentially be unsafe to work to provide that. And so it's up to the organization to provide that safety, to provide that next level of need, to make sure it's in place. And that's something that maybe we need to focus on is how are we providing that based on the science, based on the data that's available that we have. And it's going to evolve. I truly, and I've said this before, I don't think that we're fully going to understand what has happened here. For a couple of years, there's going to be some really interesting case studies that a couple of years looking back, you have to really view it from that 50,000 foot view. You have to walk away from it, look back at it, run the studies, do the investigations and really see what worked based on good correlations. Because right now there's so much data floating around and it's evolving so quickly and it's kind of hard to figure out what is going on sometimes. But right now, I don't think that we should be throwing extra regulations at companies that are struggling to get people back to work, that want to get back to work, and not be able to enforce it. Because that becomes confusing, especially if you don't have even the educational resources to push out there and get out there and really push the message of, here's how you can become compliant, or here's what we feel like is best. And so we're still running off the guidance of, okay, What does the CDC say? What is NIOSH helping us do? What is the government helping us understand about the regulations? What kind of masks should we 
we be wearing? What is good social distancing? What kind of hand sanitizer? What what is killing the virus? What can what cleaning agents are out there? And of course, there's part of that's part of the OSHA FAQ is will guide you through like these are the items that we know can disinfect for COVID nineteen. This is what you should be using. So there's some really good information already out there, and we need to use that first before we can start adding more on top of it. And especially with the shortage of people that can help us enforce it and educate it. That's, of course, most important. So more podcast in just a moment. TSD Amalgamated, your partner in safety consulting. Find them on the web at tsdamalgamated.com. With over 15 years of experience in various industries, setting up ISO, TS, and RC systems, the professional team at TSD Amalgamated is ready to help you take your safety program to that next level. TSD Amalgamated is skilled in technical and behavioral auditing, from training employees on OSHA compliance standards to helping your leadership team see how safety can help drive real organizational change. TSD Amalgamated is there to be your partner. Their process is not a fill-in-the-blank policy or training process. They want to know your team, your needs, and create processes that create total organizational ownership. TSD Amalgamated, where do you want your safety programs to take you? www.tsdamalgamated.com back to the podcast uh next part really interesting a few articles came out this past week in the news across the nation about trenching which is fairly common unfortunately for construction work where trenches collapse so found these very interesting reading through them understanding what happened and kind of some of the lack of planning some of the lack of work Unfortunately, both of these led to fatalities, which is unfortunately common with trenching. When they collapse, it's never, never going to work out well. Too much too much variability, too much issues, not enough preparedness. Usually if you let it collapse in the first place, you're not really prepared for any type of emergency action or response to that. But this was in Washington State, this first one. And it happened back in January, and they're finally settling out, looking at uh, around almost half a million dollars worth of fines for this fatality and then significant injury. They were putting up a wind farm and had to do some trenching to get ready to lay some of the deep pipes that need to, to erect these amazing pieces of equipment for wind turbines to produce energy. And basically they were doing a trench. Someone was in there doing some work. It collapsed on them. And then two rescue workers, or one watching worker and one that was operating the trenching machine, both jumped in to try to save the person. And it collapsed a second time, um, severely injuring one, killing another. And luckily one of them was able to unbury themselves and from the knees down was able to get out and go run and get help at that point to provide more people to help unbury everyone so they took shifts going in of in and out trying to get people out of there 
And so there were very serious injuries, one fatality. Um, of course, the, the soil was just not right. Said they'd had a lot of rains in the area during that time, early in the year. No trench box was available. No rescue equipment was available. Uh, evidently, they weren't trained on how to summon for rescue because that's a big part of trenching and also confined space. When you look at that is, what do we do? How do we rescue? What do you, who do you call for? And that's just normal emergency response, not that it's part of the actual legislation. But nonetheless, it's something that you should always be thinking about is whatever work you're doing, how do you get help when you need it? And just jumping in and not getting more people coming is never a good thing. So very unfortunate. And it really got me thinking about trenching and and not only that, but just all around safety when it comes to soil and how are we protecting our team when it comes to that? And this is such a huge issue that you see so many trenches that are done not in the right way. And there's a lot of interesting stories out there when you search trenching and you search some of that where an OSHA official will drive by, see a trench going on, see it that it's not right, stop, pull some people out like, hey, guys, come on out of that trench. And then it collapses soon after. And normally in the safety world, you don't get that kind of instantaneous like, yeah, I just did something that really did protect you. Most of the time it feels like that we're just nagging people that, hey, don't do that. You're going to get hurt. And But yeah, they've never seen anyone get hurt from that. And in that case, you you can see stories where we've OSHA officials have pulled people out of trenches and then that trench collapsed. And right there's that instantaneous feedback that says, yeah, that wasn't right. And that's where trench boxes or com- correct shoring is so important when it comes to doing this work. And then there was another story that came out of Georgia. Uh, they were doing, uh, again, trenching. It was a contractor doing it for fiber optic, had a guy in there, um, and it collapsed. It uh, failing to train their employees on trench hazards. Competent person wasn't there. No means of egress from the water accumulation that was happening. Uh, no shoring or sloping or shielding. So it was, um, and then they also didn't report the fatality within eight hours. So had a fatality and then didn't report it on time. So that one was out of Georgia. And again, it's all about that soil condition and knowing that a lot of the soil is not as strong as you think it is. When you start cutting through it, it may seem like that's just a wall of solid mass and it's, it's not. And it's very dangerous to put someone in there without the protections they need to be safe. And we've got to provide that. It's just unbelievably dangerous and it doesn't happen enough to where we protect our teams when they go in there. And so I'll even tell a story about that happened here to uh, my family. That was just uh, a very interesting idea that kind of talks of not really trenches, but uh, live pretty on a, on a farm in a rural area. A lot of the ground is sandy and clay. So topsoil, of course, and then it's got like layers of sand and clay. So the soil's terrible for trenching. You just don't dig unless you know it's going to fall in. So you don't dig deep unless you just got to. But there's a creek that runs kind of the property line. And it was raining one day very heavy. And something that my children love to do is they love to go down and watch the water flow. Of course, we don't get too close to the edge. We stay back far enough to kind of watch the water flow. And 
on the edges of this are some trees and some roots. And you can see where it's starting to, some of it's starting to fall apart and the roots are sticking out. And it looks, I mean, it looks somewhat solid. And it always does look solid until it just completely collapses. And so we're watching, or this was actually, I wasn't down there at the time. It was my wife and my children. And of course, they came and told me immediately when this happened. They're down there watching. And of course, my kids being my kids were going, hey, can we go down and play in the water as it's flowing? And my wife had the perfect sense about it that, no, it doesn't seem right. Like the water's flowing too fast. There's just doesn't seem like a good day for that. And just as they were turning their back to walk away, they heard a huge crack and a fall. And two big trees right on the edge and a big chunk of soil just gave loose down into the creek. It was and the trees are down. There's a big chunk of dirt now down in it. And that could have completely been where my kids were playing. If they'd went down into that flowing water, because it gave way. It was even with those trees in it, even with that untouched soil from that standpoint gave way and fell in. And so even from that standpoint, you have to look at there's dangers when it comes to being in an area where that soil could give way because it normally gives way in a big way. It's not like you get a few trickles and it gives you that warning of some kind. It's There's no warning. It just snaps and then there's soil everywhere. And unfortunately, there's still that myth out there that in most cases, I can I can just dig my way out. I'll be fine. No, that's like that same myth about I can hold my breath long enough to go into that space and pull my friend out with a confined space. That's a myth. That's not the way it works. That's heavy. It's a lot heavier than you think it is. And the pressure it puts on the body instantaneously can do a lot of damage very quickly, even at a very low part of the body. And there's no, you can't dig fast enough to get out from under that amount of of soil, that amount of dirt that's falling at you. Very scary. And that actually uh, made a pretty big impact on my kids and wife, what happened to them, just watching how fast that whole dirt, that whole area just broke loose, fell down. Very thankful my wife had that 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 safety sense about her. I think a lot of moms have that, that, ten, that spider sense about safety in their children. She knew, hey, this just doesn't feel right today. We're not going to do that. And pretty large amount of dirt and soil just gone. And same thing here. These workers go into this trench, probably watching a lot of other people work safely in trenches. I'm sure this was not the first trench that any of these people had worked on. In the same way, either in Washington or in Georgia. My guess is that this was not this company's first trench they've ever cut. This is not the first time they've ever done this work. And so the workers have seen many successful trenches without the right protection, without that sloping, shoring protection in place. And so when they went in there, they began work that day. They were assuming this was going to be like every other time. Even though it was not right, even though the soil wasn't tested, there was no protections there, they've seen it done successfully so many times that they had a feeling of safety about it. Maybe. Maybe there's a lot of complaints out there about these companies. I wasn't able to find any information on that. But they've probably seen it successfully done a few times. And so they made a choice to enter 
And that was unfortunate because that was the day that it broke loose, that it fell apart. And then a lot of people panicked around them, wanted to help, wanted to jump in, trying to help someone. And that's admirable in a lot of ways to try to help somebody. But we have to be trained to help the right way, to have help coming, to have more help, to have a plan. Because we have to be able to, okay, if rescue plan A doesn't work, how do we go forward with B, C, or D? What do we keep doing? Who do we call? How do we have more help coming? And I know that's something that is trained a lot is always have help coming. So when it comes to like, if you've been through a CPR first aid class, one of the first things that I teach during those classes is that if you're needing to do CPR on someone, you need to make sure there's more help coming because you can only do CPR for so long before you can't do it anymore. And so you need to make sure you have help coming. Make that phone call yourself if you have to. Find someone. Make sure they understand that you need them to make that call. And so with any emergency process, it's all about making sure that you have extra help ready and available and coming to you. And that's a big piece of what safety is about, is planning for some of those emergency situations. So you look at it from both ways. You look at safety from the standpoint of, first of all, let's prevent it from happening. And then if something goes wrong, not the way we want it, what help and how fast can we bring that help and get things going? Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Very happy that you were part of this. Look forward to the next time we chat. Until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Join the conversation on the internet at www.thesafetydude.org or on Twitter at thesafetydude. As always, all opinions are my own and not affiliated with any business entity. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for proper policy, appropriate training, or legal advice. I always encourage you to learn more about safety regulations and examine the facts with your unique perspective. This has been the Leading and Learning Through Safety Podcast. <music>